The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Holy One, we come to you acknowledging that you reign sovereign over all things and asking you for mercy and grace to meet us now. If we think about all that we are, Lord, we have no right to come into your presence, but you have changed that. By your work on the cross, you have made many of us here sons and, and daughters adopted into your family. So you welcome us into your presence. You delight in us. But you still are an awesome, awesome God. Holy and transcendent in everything, always. And so we are welcomed in as, as friends and, and children and we come and we can look at you but Lord, let us not become too familiar and lose the sense of majesty that is inherent in you. Lord, I, I pray this morning, I find myself in some ways distracted and divided in my mind. and There are probably others of us here in the same situation. So Lord, I pray, would you give grace to us to focus and to see you and to understand you for who you are. to receive your word from you, to understand it, to apply it, to hope in it, and to be changed by it. Lord, would you produce that effect in us by your spirit, by grace this morning. Give clarity to my words. Give openness and focus to our hearts and minds. And would you do that, Lord, so that the sun would be lifted up and would be proclaimed in us, within us, and then through us out to others. Lord, that's my hope this morning. Would you come and would you be graciously powerful in our midst? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God has raised up His chosen servant to spread His salvation to all the nations. He is the seed of Abraham the one in whom all the blessings are found and flow out. He is the king in the line of David who sits and reigns over the people of God forever. He is the prophet like Moses to whom all must listen. He is the author of life through whom and for whom were all things made. He is the holy and righteous one. God's character, God himself in flesh. The one that God has lifted up and glorified. The hope of the nations. The hope of Israel. This is who He is. Sent as a servant to suffer. Dying on the cross. Paying for sin. And if you will turn to Him, blessing will flow out to you. All of this has been proven true by the fact of the resurrection from the dead. All of this proven true by the fact of this lame man standing right here in front of you, walking and leaping. So respond to the truth and repent. Turn to Him. 
That's Peter's message in Acts chapter 3. Pressing on people who Jesus is. Holding Him up as the only hope for mankind. The only way that sin can be wiped away. It is Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, and hope for people. And Satan hates that. He hates it. He is chiefly opposed to the exaltation of Christ. He is opposed to the sovereignty of God, the lifting up of God over all things, and the calling of people into the eternal worship of God and the eternal enjoyment of God. He is hell-bent against that. And so he stirs up the first persecution of the New Testament church, calling out those who he has taken captive to do his will, calling them out to suppress this message. Persecution like that starts... And it continues to this day. If you're a Christian here, you've experienced some sort of that persecution. Not in all the ways that you could experience it. But in some way you've experienced that. You've spoken up, you've shared the gospel. Or at least tried to make Jesus an issue somewhere. And your coworker smirked at you and, and laughed. Or the guy in the bus told you to shut up. Or your neighbor said she wasn't interested and then stopped talking to you for a long time and let, doesn't let her kids play with your kids anymore. Or your classmates mock you. Or you're reprimanded at work. Something like that has happened to you. Forms of persecution. Not as bad as it could be. And certainly not what it's like around the world. In many countries, many countries, many Christians today are persecuted in far more severe ways than that. But this is a persecution. And we do experience this at least. And for many of us, that's enough. That works just fine to scare us into silence. We get the message and we stop. Become afraid and quiet. Problem is, that is not how we are supposed to respond to opposition. That is not what God has called us to. He has called us to courageously communicate Christ to everyone. We are not to be scared into silence, but too often we are. Which brings us to our passage for today. In this passage, we see Peter and John respond to the opposition that they faced, the persecution that broke out against them. We see what, what happened to them. We see how they responded. And importantly, in this passage, God's given us this passage so that we can learn what our hearts and minds are to be set on so that we can respond courageously, so that we can courageously communicate Christ and not be silenced we learn in this passage. Let me read it. It's Acts chapter 4 verses 1 to 22. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. 
On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed to them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that they may not spread this message any further, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot speak, cannot but speak, of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Chapter 4 begins with an interruption because Peter, in fact, is not done preaching to the crowd yet. He's, he's still talking to them, but the authorities, they hear about what's going on and they are very upset and they come to stop him. Come and they take him and they arrest him. They're upset because of what he's teaching. He's teaching about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, and specifically he's teaching that in Jesus the resurrection of the dead has begun. Jesus rose from the dead, the first one to do that, and in him other people can rise from the dead too. That's a sign of the messianic age, which they don't like and they object to it. They're greatly annoyed for those two reasons then, because they're saying he's the Messiah, and they don't believe that obviously. And because they're Sadducees, the text informs us. Most of them are Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, period. The Sadducees were a, were a group of religious leaders in, in that day. And so they have two problems going on here. One, they're, they're objecting to the claims that he's the Messiah. So they're objecting to what they're teaching about this convicted criminal Jesus in their minds. But then also they're objecting that they're teaching something that's just flat out false. There is no resurrection. So for those two reasons, they want to stop this message. They corral them and throw them in jail. But, as Paul would later say, you can chain up the messenger, but you cannot chain the message. The gospel cannot be chained. And people heard the word, and up to now 5,000 men are believers, not counting the women and the children. The church is growing by the preaching of the word, even though the authorities are trying to stop it. 
verses 5 to 22 then, in, in a very matter-of-fact way, describe the interrogation that followed. And it reads so, so cleanly that it would be very easy to just read over it and not really understand the magnitude of this setting here, of this situation. They're standing before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a 71-member ruling council over Judaism at the time, controlled by the high priest's family and controlled by the Sadducees. They bring them out and they stand them in front of this council. Now this council is large and today it seems to be a full house. There are many people there and they're all sitting in a great big semicircle. It's attended by all the the chief leaders, Annas and Caiaphas and other members from that family. They're all seated there and standing in the middle are Peter and John and evidently the, the formerly lame man as well. They're there to interrogate them. And it could not have eluded their understanding that the last time that they were around these folks, this same group of people, Caiaphas and company, they were interrogating and then condemning Jesus. Peter and John know these guys have a fixed opinion about Jesus. That's clear. And so when they ask them, by what power or by what name did you do this? perhaps referring to the man who's been healed there. They know, these guys have an opinion about Jesus, and they also know, and they know what we're teaching. That's why they arrested us. Because we're teaching about Jesus, and that in Jesus the resurrection has begun. That's why they arrested us. They know what we're teaching. This is not an information gathering session. This is an intimidation session. Bring out two people, stand them in the middle, surround them by 71 people who condemn Jesus and say, by what name are you doing this? Standing and kind of leaning over them. Trying to make him be quiet. To intimidate him into silence. It's an implied threat and even just having him there. Let alone what they say later. So trying to put him on the defensive and to silence him. But Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, that means anointed, controlled, directed, empowered by the Holy Spirit here, switches from defense to offense and says, verse 9, if you're wondering how a good deed of healing was done to a crippled man who has spent 40 years sitting on your doorstep, let me tell you. Let it be clearly known here to all of you and throughout all of Israel. I'm not going to be silenced here. I'm shouting it from the rooftops to everyone. Let it be clearly known. Here's what happened. It was done by the power of the name of Jesus who is the Messiah. The one that you killed. (laughs) Whom you rejected. Whom you crucified. But God strongly disagreed with this lower court's verdict and overturned it and has approved him and raised him. This is remarkably bold. And Peter had to wonder if he was signing his own death warrant. They killed Jesus, same people, just a couple of months ago. But he comes out and he says that. This, this is not like talking to a coworker over lunch who might smirk at you or disagree. These are people who literally hold his life in their hands, and they know it, and he says it anyway. But lest we think that Peter's like some superhuman apostle, what's the difference? Full of the Spirit, same Spirit that you have. Same Spirit that if you're a Christian, all of us have. 
That's the difference. Peter cowered last time he was around Caiaphas. Denied that he even knew Jesus three times to Caiaphas' servant girl. And now he says this, the difference, full of the Spirit. He raises the issue of the cross and the resurrection again. Peter is preached three times in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And every time he does it, he forcefully brings home the guilt of his audience. He starts right there, brings home the guilt of his audience by pointedly highlighting the contrast between their opinion of Jesus and God's opinion of Jesus. You killed him. You rejected him, denied him, killed him, and God raised him from the dead. He says that in 2, 3, and 4. And he goes even further. He continues on to quote Psalm 118. You builders, you who are putting together this nation and this religious system, building up this structure, you rejected this one. Here's a stone that comes along. Nope, doesn't meet our qualifications. And you threw him away. But lo and behold, God brought him back and put him right back in the middle of this building as the cornerstone, the chief stone, the one that's the corner of the foundation. You build the whole rest of the foundation around the cornerstone. You build the house on top of the foundation. God put back right here the one that you threw away. You're guilty through and through. He's pressing this on them. And then he switches to the only hope for mankind. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else at all. No other name given to men under heaven by which we must be saved. No other name but this Jesus. Peter's purpose, pressing home this sin, is not to taunt them. It's to lead to verse 12. To talk about the need for and the way for salvation. He's illumining this path for them. There's one way to be saved. Faith in Jesus. This is all remarkably bold. and It seems like the Sanhedrin is shocked in verse 13. These are uneducated common people. Uneducated common does not mean that they, they had never been to school. It means they'd never been to seminary, if you will. They're laymen. They had no theological education, no theological training that they knew of. And here they are standing debating theology with a very large group of very hostile seminary professors. It's remarkable. It's kind of surprising. And it's just like Jesus. They know that. It's just like Jesus. Something of them has ru- him has rubbed off on them, and they probably mean that as an insult, but Peter and John certainly take that as a compliment, as should we. They're just like him. Not cowering in fear, but telling us the truth and pointing us to Christ in salvation that is only available in him. Just like Jesus. Ah. They're frustrated by that because they're politically over a barrel. They don't know what to do. What can you do? They can't punish these people because they can't deny the, the, the lame man standing right here. Everybody knows it. And it would seem somehow improper to punish somebody for doing such a very kind, merciful thing. But they clearly don't want this message to spread, so what do they do? What can they do? Why not produce the body of Jesus? They're teaching that Jesus is the Messiah and that the resurrection of the dead has begun in this Jesus. Well, bring Jesus' body out. His tomb's right here in town. Bring it out, publicly display it, end of problem. That never even occurs to them. They never discuss it. 
because it's impossible. They want to avoid any discussion of that fact. They don't go down that road. Instead, all they're left with is just plain old suppression backed by a threat. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. And it's not an empty threat. Now, here in this passage, it says they can't do anything to him because of the crowds. But the authorities managed to overcome the miracles and the temporary crowd supported Jesus, didn't they? And if you keep reading in Acts, they will overcome the miracles and the temporary crowd support, and they will punish and even kill some of the apostles later. This is not an empty threat. They're communicating a message. Don't talk about Jesus or else. Which makes verse 19 all the more remarkable, because Peter and John get the message. We got that. We got the message. And we've also received a message from someone else. And you be the judge as to who we should listen to. As for us, though, it's crystal clear. You want us to be quiet, that's not going to happen. That's where the text ends. They're not cowed into silence, but actually asserting quite the opposite. We will not be quiet, come what may. We have Peter and John, two apostles, facing the opposition that rises up against the gospel, responding to it boldly. They're modeling here, of course. They're modeling what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to be. But more importantly, because we all know that, more importantly than what we're supposed to do, in this passage as we read it, we can find out how we're supposed to do it. How it comes about. How do we get to this point? So there's a little bit of how-to here, but it's not technique or skill-based how-to. It's about something going on in here. How do I get to this bold, courageous proclamation of Jesus? How do I get there? Something has to happen in here. My heart and my mind has to be focused on something. So this passage is going to bring out for us. Here's the main point for this morning. There is, there's a root to this boldness. It's the main point it's going to get after. Courageous commitment to communicating Christ. A lot of C's in there. Courageous commitment to communicating Christ is rooted in fear of God. Courageous commitment to communicating Christ is rooted in, it comes from, it's built on, grows out of fear of God. Talk about that root in a second, but first let me talk about the message that we're supposed to communicate. Christ. I'm going to approach this main point in, in two ways. First, by talking about the message, the communication about Christ that we are to be laying out there for all to see and to hear. His first point is found in Peter's response to the question put to them in verse 7. How did you do this? His answer, in the name of Jesus alone is salvation. In the name of Jesus alone is salvation. This is the message that we are commissioned to courageously communicate. Jesus alone saves. And salvation is the issue here. It seems they're talking about a healing, but when Peter rephrases their question in verse 9, so you want to know how this guy was healed? He uses the word there that is the common word for salvation, for saved. Because in his mind, they are not two separate things. 
The overcoming, the physical saving, the physical delivering of a person from the physical effects of the fall and the curse is directly connected to the overcoming and the spiritual saving of a person from the spiritual effects of the fall and the curse. They're they're right next to each other. If you find the one who puts the world back together physically, you found the one who puts the world back together spiritually, who saves the soul and not just the body. And they and we all are in desperate need of that kind of soul salvation. Peter's first move after naming Jesus is to directly confront his listeners on sin. We saw that. Jesus, whom you killed. Again, he says that. Moves on. Jesus, the one that you threw away, that you looked at, considered, and discarded. You're guilty. You did all that in direct opposition to the Scriptures, to the Word of God, demanding that a murderer be released, shunning the holy and the righteous one. You're guilty. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, so God is saying this, he's going for the jugular vein. Right in their face on guilt and sin. Accountability before God. He's direct. He's confrontational here. may seem he's a little harsh. But this is the mercy of God. You should look at that and read it and say, Oh, the mercy of God. And you might say, how is that mercy? Even your tone there communicates harshness. How is that mercy? It's so, I mean, maybe it's judgment, but it's not mercy. It's conviction, but it's not kindness. But it is the mercy of God. When God moves Peter to directly confront their sin. And it is the mercy of God when God moves someone else, like perhaps me, or someone in your small group, a friend, your spouse, your parents, your children even. When God moves someone to confront your sin and point out your sin, it is His mercy to you. Just like it's a good thing when a doctor points out high blood pressure or a blocked artery or cancer that's growing in your body. Isn't it? Isn't that a good thing? I mean, it's painful when you first hear it. But most of us would consider ourselves fortunate to find out about this disease before it runs its deadly course in us. It's a good thing. And a person apart from Christ is afflicted with a disease far more serious than cancer. Sin kills. Sin kills the soul. If you're not a Christian here, sin will deprive you of life now and of life forever. But if you are a Christian, sin still deprives you of life. Like weeds growing in your lawn, it chokes away the goodness. It chokes away life. It it reaches up and it grabs your throat and it throttles you. And it keeps away from you joy and hope and peace. Sin kills you and it is the mercy of God to point it out. Bring it before your eyes. Shock you with it so that you deal with it. May He be merciful to you like that. To point out your sin and to point out 
the one Savior. Peter here in this passage, a responsible, spirit-filled Christian, myself I hope, never points out sin so as to rub your nose in it, make you ashamed. We point out sin so as to show you the need for and the path to hope and salvation. Jesus taught only sick people go to doctors, guys. That's why the Pharisees don't come to me, but all these folks do. You must see sin. And then you must see the Savior. Verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given by which we must be saved. Now, a lot of us here already know this, but probably not everybody. Even Christians. I have have conversation with a number of folks who claim Christ who aren't real clear on this. Because it is very much in vogue to claim that there are multiple roads to heaven. That is what our society is swimming in. Every road leads to heaven. Every road is just as, as good as the other as long as the person on that path faithfully follows it. Maybe even, you don't even have to be on a road. You just have to be good. Because God doesn't send anybody to hell because God is love. He wouldn't do anything so mean as that. Which this verse directly refutes as well as the rest of the Bible. Not that God is love. God is clearly love. The Bible affirms that. But God is also holy and just and He is a unity. He is lovingly holy. Justly loving. These things are always together in God. You cannot separate them out and say, I will throw away His holiness and bank on His love. Can't do that. He is loving and He is holy and just, which means He will not allow sin to go unpunished. Not a one. All sin is punished. And that is actually loving. Who wants to live in a world in which sin does not get punished forever and ever and ever. Sin's what's wrecked this world. We want justice. We want that to happen in our world. Not to us, but to other people who affect us. He's going to make a world clean of sin, justly removing all sin, punishing all sin in every appropriate way. Which is why Jesus is the only one who can save. Jesus alone, God who came down to earth in a body, God forever who took on a body, came down to live, to walk sinless and perfect, having no sin, deserving no punishment. He alone is like that. No other name under heaven is like that. Not yours, not mine, not some prophets, not some false prophets, not some other religious leader. No one else is like that. God in flesh, sinless. He alone. And he alone then, though he does not deserve punishment, takes it on himself at the cross, absorbing the wrath of God. He alone then can take your sin and can give you his righteousness because he alone has righteousness and has paid for your sin. He alone. A lot more could be said about that. The Bible is crystal clear. There is one path. There is one way. He is the way, the truth, the life. Not a way, a truth, and a life. 
No other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Conscious faith in Jesus alone saves. Only. This is mercy from God to point out your sin and to then create and then point out this one path of salvation that leads to joy and blessing. This is good news. This is a message that is full of hope. This is what we are called to courageously communicate to people. To carry to them good news. We should be excited about that. They should be excited about that. Because we we trumpet that with no triumphalism. We cry out, not braggingly, but full of mercy and hope. We, We shout that out to all people. There is good news for you. Now that happens sometimes with somebody standing here lifting up his voice. Probably happens more commonly in a normal tone of voice over a cup of coffee. But you're proclaiming nonetheless. Making sin clear. Making Jesus an issue. Good news delivered to people. But you know they won't always see that as good news. You know that from your own experience. In fact, most commonly, they don't see it as good news. How do you keep courageously proclaiming it then? People oppose you. That gets to the second point. When your neighbor or your family member or your friend oppose you, even though this is a good message, it's full of hope, it's good news, they oppose you, what do you do? Well, before we consider the answer, let's, let's take a minute and be real about the problem because I can't just say in, in 10 seconds, people will oppose you, of course, because people really will oppose you. And you know that. They won't like to hear this. The world and the prince of this world, Satan, doesn't like this gospel and will try to oppose it in a number of different ways. The one that's highlighted here is is naked force. There are other ways, but the one that's here is, is oppression and suppression. That's what he stirs up the Sanhedrin to to preach to the apostles. It's what you hear in in your life and in your workplace and in your social settings as well. You hear this message. If you preach Jesus, this is going to hurt you in a variety of different ways, but it will physically, tangibly hurt you. Let's be honest about that. That's the message being communicated. If you preach Christ to this man right here, or if you even mention Jesus to him, if you bring it up, you're going to lose his respect, you may lose him as a client, you may lose that income, and you may lose your job, which will hurt you. If you point out this person's sin, they will hate the messenger because they hate the message. They never see the hope that comes after it. They'll hate the messenger, and they won't talk to you. They're going to shun you. You're going to lose that relationship, which will hurt you. If you insist in conversation with your classmates that all roads do not lead to heaven equally, but only one does, you will be called a bigot. You will be called spiritually arrogant, and you will be shunned and mocked, isolated, left alone in school, which will hurt you because nobody likes that. 
If you take that split-second opportunity to introduce spiritual matters or to talk about judgment or forgiveness or to correctly define grace or to reject a sinful attitude or sinful behavior, whatever, if you grab a hold of that split-second and you do that or say that or don't do that or don't say that, people will notice and will in some way ridicule or mock, shun, smirk, laugh, whatever, which will hurt you. And we should put this in a perspective. It won't kill you. In some countries of the world today, right now, that will kill you. I've seen the story in the paper recently about the, the teacher. I have no reason to believe she's a Christian, but the teacher who's let her class name this teddy bear Muhammad, and people want to kill her for that. You can be sure that if you talk to that crowd about Jesus and sin, they would kill you. In many places in the world, that's reality. Here, it's only they'll mock you, they'll laugh at you, they'll ridicule you. Maybe they won't talk to you anymore. I mean, to put that in perspective, but to be honest, for most of us, as I said, that's enough. And we build our holy huddle, and we stay inside here because it's safe. There's too much risk out there if I bring up Jesus. I'll talk about Jesus very boldly, very confidently in here, and out there I will be silent about him. There's too much risk, too much I can lose out there. It might hurt me too much. Loss of relationships, loss of financial situation, loss of safety, security, maybe loss of life. We're afraid of all of those things, and so we are silenced. And that's not right. So, now we're getting to the second point here. How do you overcome that silencing fear? With fear. You fight fear in here with fear in here, but of a different sort. The fear of God drives out all other fears and enables wise boldness. The fear of God in here drives out all other fears and enables wise boldness. Now, when I talk about the fear of God, let me explain what I mean. The Bible everywhere exhorts people to fear God. First and foremost, because He is the judge. He's the creator and judge of all things, and He is one that we have offended and one who holds our lives eternally in His hands. And if you're not a Christian, He's angry with you every day, and you should fear that. That's clear, but that's only one little aspect of the fear of God. More broadly speaking, the fear of God is the kind of wonder and humble, careful respect that you experience in here when you are in the presence of the awesome. Something that is full of awe, majesty, that is stunning and grand. Something happens in you that is humbling, causes you to be careful. That's what the fear of God primarily, more broadly speaking, is getting at in the Bible. It's like this. Have you ever been to a waterfall? And I mean a really big waterfall like Niagara Falls. I don't know what a comparable one would be out, out here, but Niagara Falls out in the east is huge. 
It's colossal. It's impossible to, to really get a sense of it by just describing how much water goes over the fall in any given minute or how far the water plummets before it crashes into the river below, creating a, a perpetual mist that clouds the view there at the bottom. There is such raw power there at Niagara. The, the falls are actually moving. They're moving backwards because the water is carving away the solid rock underneath of the fall, and it's moving backwards over time. It is such a powerful, awesome, huge thing. And if you observe from a distance, it looks spectacular. People go honeymoon there because it's a cool backdrop. It looks spectacular. But if you were to go and to stand at the foot of it, I mean right at the foot of it, right there in that mist, where you'd be soaked by all the spray crashing off of the water, you couldn't talk to the person standing right next to you because of the constant thundering. You get a totally different perspective. Totally different. You'd be standing there uneasy inside. Soaked. Buffeted by sound. Knowing that I'm safe right here, but if I step just out there, I'll be washed away and I will die. Not may die will die. I'm looking at it. It's intimidating. Not because the waterfall is going to judge you and send you to hell. It's not. It's inanimate. Nothing to do with judgment. And if you're a Christian, God has nothing to do with judgment on you anymore. There's no condemnation for you if you're actually in Christ. So judgment in hell is not on the table. Not with God if you're a Christian. Not here at the waterfall but you're still a little bit afraid inside. You don't actually think you are going to step off and be washed away. You're not going to be judged. So why are you uneasy in here? Because this waterfall makes you feel so very small. You stand next to it and you realize, I am helpless here in this realm right here, this thing is omnipotent. It does anything it wants to me or to anything else. It carves away rock. It washes away all that gets in its way. I'm nothing here. There's nothing that I can do. I can't stop it. I can't change its course. I can't stay dry. I can't hold it back. I can't put up an umbrella, divert the flow of water. I mean, I have a lot going for me. I'm educated. I'm successful. I'm wealthy, maybe. I'm good-looking, perhaps. I'm skilled. I know my way around the Internet. All of this stuff, who cares? You're small. Just a teeny person next to this majestic, grand, powerful, mighty waterfall. You look at it, towering over you, falling down and crashing. You're small. Now you can walk away from Niagara. We don't live anywhere near Niagara. You can walk away, you can drive away, and all of us with all of our, our intellect and our wealth and our success and our know-how, we can get together and we could build a dam, for instance, and we could divert the water. We can overcome Niagara. But there is one who is supremely majestic and transcendently mighty in all arenas. 
not just right there in that little geographic spot, in all arenas, one whom we cannot escape, who towers over us in might and in splendor and in awe and in majesty and in beauty. If you're a Christian, He's not going to judge you and send you to hell. That's not on the table. But there is still much here that should make your jaw drop. And if you saw that, if you stood before it constantly, you would tremble inside. In a humbled, reverential fear. And seeing that, constantly being in front of it, that's what the Holy Spirit lives inside of you to do. To bring you intimately into connection with God so that you see Him and know Him. This is what Paul prayed for for Christians in Ephesians 1. God, by the Spirit, opened the eyes of Christians' hearts so that they can see, and he names off a couple of things, and the last one he mentions, so they can see the great power that you have, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the power that you have that is for them, so that they can see that power. That's what the Spirit living in you is commissioned to do. To open your eyes and help you to see Him and to stand in awe of Him and to fear Him like this. You should cry out then, Spirit, help me to see Him and to fear Him. Take control of me. Make me like Peter and John were on that day, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, surely, being filled with the Holy Spirit here, It's a particular point about the Spirit giving them power to say these particular words, telling them what to say, giving them influence with them, with the the hearers. So clearly being filled with the Spirit has something to do with their witnessing. But the Spirit also, we read in the rest of the Bible, was coming to them to remind them, Jesus said, of all that you've seen and all that I've taught. And what did they say down in verse 20? We've seen and heard a lot that we cannot help but talk about. How is that? Well, theologically, I put all that together and say the Spirit in them right now is reminding them and continually reminding them, showing them and continually showing them Jesus, His life and His character that they were next to for all those years, that they walked around next to, that they heard Him teach, bringing that to their minds and helping them see it. We saw something amazing. We saw the dead Rise by the word of Jesus. We saw the blind see by the word of Jesus. We've seen the lame rise up by the word of Jesus. And we stood at the empty tomb and looked at the grave clothes there, empty, abandoned. And we stood in the upper room and put our fingers in the holes. We've seen and heard a lot. And right now the Spirit filling us is reminding us of all this. Showing it to us. How can I not talk about that? So I hear the message, Sanhedrin, that if I talk about Him, you will hurt me. I got that. And I also got this message. You judge for yourselves, which I'm supposed to listen to, but it's pretty clear to me. I am not in awe of you. I do not fear you because 
I am in awe of and I fear another one who is your master as well. Do whatever you want. You can't touch me. I mean, his hands. I don't fear you who can only kill the body. I fear the one who has the power to destroy, destroy the body and the soul. Omnipotence. Might. Majestic power. Peter and John are gripped by something. That's where we're supposed to be. Verse, 20, verse 19 is the clearest expression of the, the root of their courageous boldness here. When they hold up this, this comparison, should we listen to you or should we listen to God? What they're doing there is weighing authorities. Weighing power. If you're in a car accident like I was recently as a witness, not in one, you, watch, you see a car accident and somebody says to you, some guy on the street, oh, you can probably go home now. And the cop says, no, 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 I want you to stay here and fill out a report. Who do you listen to? You don't even think about it. You stay and you fill out the report because he or she is in charge. The badge, the uniform, the gun says so. <laughs> that cop's not going to shoot you. The, the gun is not really a factor in this situation. Might taser you, but it won't shoot you. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. But. The cop's not going to shoot you. The gun is just a reminder of who is in charge. The badge is a reminder of who is in charge. And all that stands behind that badge and gun. The power of the state. Compared to which, this guy on the street has nothing. That's what's going on in verse 19. Peter says, I see you and your power. I got the message. You're going to hurt me. Received. And I see all the power behind you. But comparatively, you have nothing. Because there is another one who has all power. Who in this arena and in all arenas is omnipotent. And I tremble in front of him, so I will not tremble in front of you. I can't even tremble in front of you. Not that I'm eager to be killed or beaten or imprisoned. I don't like that. But it does not exercise controlling fear over me. He does. Figure that out for yourselves. For me, it's pretty clear. Christian, what needs to happen in your life is that the Spirit must come in, control you, take over, reign within you to open your eyes so that you see Him. If you will, so that you stand at the foot of Niagara always and don't walk away. That's our tendency to walk away, to forget, to be blinded, to fall asleep. May the Spirit come and take you and place you right there with open eyes, always seeing Him. It's Paul's prayer. should be your prayer. should be my prayer. Because fear of God drives out all other fears. You can see this applies not just to evangelism, but to, to everything. To everything. If you see Him and realize he is in charge. Period. If God is for you, who can be against you? Not to say that Paul didn't think anybody was against him. Paul knew everybody was against him. But who's actually against me? See the difference there? 
Everybody's against me, but nobody's against me because He is for me. Fear of God drives out all other fears. Courageous commitment to communicating Christ comes from fearing God. May the Spirit move in you to show God to you. Let me pray. Lord, you must help us because we are simple people. Prone to wander, Lord, I know it. Prone to leave the God I love, the God I know, the God I need. Those are the words of a Christian and that describes all of us. Prone to wander. So, Spirit, would you come and bind us to you. Bind our wandering hearts to thee. Give us sight to see. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Build in us holy fear of You. And use that to chase away the fear of everything and everyone else. It's my hope and my prayer, Lord. In Christ's name and for His glory in all of the nations. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.